Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. Like other ancient and foundational technologies, money is such a central part of our daily lives that we tend to take it for granted. And yet, without money to facilitate many of our interactions with others, it would likely be impossible for a complex society to exist. So how has money shaped our world, and how has it changed over history? Let's begin. I'm here on HI101 with Dan McGinnis. Hello. Hello. And today we're going to be talking about uh, money, um, specifically oh. like the technology of money. Yeah. Which I know is a really big idea. <laughs> I know we're kind of biting off more yeah. than we can chew. I'm sure that'll that'll fit into a, a nice short episode. Oh yeah, we're gonna we're gonna knock this one out real quick. No problems. Um, no, I, I I think that like some of the other topics you and I have done in the past, uh, this is gonna be just a just a big old survey. We're gonna talk about a couple of neat things about it, kind of give a, a broad um, historical idea of the concept, and and really not hold ourselves too accountable in terms of hitting every single possible milestone because I do not think that is a uh, even remotely possible. Fair enough. I'm going to risk sounding like um, just just the worst kind of like first year philosophy student who's uh, just. I, w- I want to start by talking about what money is. Uh huh. Yeah. I feel like we need to define some terms, <laughs> which sure. I think sounds insane because like yeah, it's it's such an in- intrinsic part of everybody's life, but also like it is serving a very concrete function. Um, actually two concrete functions uh, sort of at the same time. And it's so integrated into our lives that we don't necessarily take a lot of time to to step back and think about that at all. Yeah. And I think when we do step back, it's usually somebody who's got, uh, you're usually hearing about it from somebody who has a big problem with the way the money works currently and wants to shake things up. And then you get a lot of conversations about how, oh, it's a social construct. Money isn't real, blah, blah, blah. And, um, Mm -hmm. to be honest, that's a bit of a pet peeve of mine. Um, it, I think it shows a fundamental misunderstanding of what social constructs are and how they work. Yeah, I resent it because it uh, is a technology. Yeah, it is a technology. And I mean, the the, the fact that something is uh, mutually agreed upon and, and plays a, a created but intrinsic part in our lives doesn't mean that it's like it doesn't exist. That's not what's mm-hmm. meant by uh, a social construct. It means that we've we've all kind of built it into our lives and agreed to work our lives around it. And it's not really something you can just simply opt out of at uh, at a whim. Yeah, well, we've 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 built one or two two things on top of it. So, yeah, 
Yeah, very much so. So I, I already mentioned it kind of does two different things. And they're gonna sound really, really similar. So once we've once we've talked about those two things, then we can talk about when they're not actually interchangeable things. So first is money of account. That's the idea that you know somewhere in a book you're keeping track of um, relative values. You know, you do something for me, a number goes in a book. You know, I owe you that much now. Mm. And it's very much like a. It's very virtual. It's it's really built on mutual agreement as to what exactly is is owed. It's very contractual in nature, and it fundamentally sees money as credit. Right? Either you are gaining or you're losing this rep- representation of resources in some fu- in some fashion. Mm-hmm. And money of account is really useful for. Oh, when you're buying large portions of things or when you're, uh, you know, specifically sort of business applications, but I'm not talking like finance business necessarily. It's just as applicable for, um, you know, agriculture where you might need to buy a lot of seeds up front and then not really be able to pay for them until the harvest comes around. Things like that, right? Distributing over time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Then you also have money of exchange. And money of exchange is a physical representation of value. Um, it's like a translation layer to facilitate trade or barter between people. And it can have an inherent value. So things like a, you know, a precious metal or gems or whatever. Um, but it can also just as easily have uh, symbolic values as long as everyone involved agrees to that symbolic value. And uh, money of exchange fundamentally sees money as a commodity, something that's inherently valuable. It contains value inside it, and you can trade that thing that has value for other things of value. But it's it's a it's a universal sort of base layer for that trade or that uh, that finance. Do you think it's key that that it acts as a lubricant economically? One hundred percent. Yeah, there's. Um, <laughs> There's there's this there's this con uh, there's this concept in economics which I'm going to try to talk about as little as I can. By the way, um, I know <laughs> we're talking about money, but economics is on a whole different planet. Uh, they, yeah. they, it gets extremely complicated, and I'm not going to pretend to understand it all that well. But there's this concept called the problem of coincidence of wants, right? Hmm. So let's say that I am. Uh, trying to get rid of some grain and you're trying to get rid of uh, some animals. If we have money involved, I can sell the grain to somebody else and you can sell the, the, the animals to somebody else and it's fine. Now we both have the money we need. If I want to buy your animals, I can use money to do it. If you want to buy my grain, you can use money to do it. But without that facilitating layer in between, even though I'm trying to get rid of some grain and you're trying to get rid of some animals, I need to want your animals and you need to want my grain in order for a barter to work properly. Yeah, you need like an exact match between needs. Mm-hmm. And what's more, like, yeah, the, the idea that every time you want to get rid of something, you can you're going to barter for it is is really really difficult. Like it's time consuming. It's 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 awkward, and it lends itself to. Um, exploitation, right? Like if, if I'm trying to get rid of something that I have a lot of and I don't really care what it's worth, I can manipulate the prices for something that you're really, really looking for. 
that that layer is is fundamental to um, fair trade in the sense that everybody can sort of have a, a similar sense of how much sort of staple goods should be worth and how much it's fair to pay for them. Right. There's an idea in uh, Money of Exchange, which I think probably, if we're all really honest with ourselves, a lot more people pretended to understand over the last year than actually understood, which is fungibility. Mm-hmm. Um, right. The whole NFT thing comes up and everybody's like, oh, ah, yeah. yeah, fungible. Yeah, I know what that means. Yeah. Uh, do you it's know what, the thing that tokens are. It's the thing obviously. that tokens are. Do, do you know what fungibility means? Yeah, I've been to a carnival. So I got tokens. <laughs> You've gotten tokens. Um, <clears throat> fungibility, uh, to my understanding, is that one uh, good can be uh, perfectly substituted by another good with no change in relative outcome. Yeah, that's exactly it. That's that's all it means. It's a it's a weird, scary word, and that's all it means. So the idea there is that lots of things can be uh, fungible under other than other than money, but there has to be this this expectation of of uh, fair uh, substitution. So if um, you know if you come over and borrow a cup of sugar from me, and I say don't worry about it, but next time I need one, I'll, I'll come by, and you can give me a cup of completely different sugar, well, and then we're square. I mean, not that I'd ever write that in a ledger, right? That'd, that'd be weird, right? Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, the fact that, that that could be really any sugar, it doesn't have to be my sugar back, that's fungibility. Whereas, I don't know, you're selling a bicycle and I have a priceless Van Gogh painting, and mm-hmm. you yeah. agree you agree to sell your bicycle for this Van Gogh painting, and I've dropped by and I've got a, you know, sort of a, a crumpled, poster of a of a da vinci you're gonna go like well no that's not what we agreed to and i'm gonna say well what it's a it's, a, it's an image created by a master and you're gonna go but it's not the same thing yeah yeah i'm keeping my bicycle that's fair <laughs> so these these two technologies like for the most part are doing the same thing right like they're they're a way to um sort of even the playing field in terms of value and when trading goods, services, whatever. This all sounds really basic. And for the most part, they are pretty interchangeable, except in like very key specific spots where they aren't. Um, So for example, if uh, there's some sort of market manipulation going on, uh, you could be um, selling goods for uh, a lot more than they're worth, or you could be only uh, honoring say, a portion of what's in a ledger because of uh, certain market conditions. Uh, you can have bank failures where you know you th- have money in a ledger and the institution keeping that ledger uh, goes under, and then now you just don't have that money anymore. It's gone. Right. If you had had money of exchange in that situation, well, you would still have your you know physical currency loss of confidence in a currency can can really hamper uh something like this so you could have you know millions of dollars in a currency that nobody's actually willing to accept and you don't really have anything of value and uh finally if the inherent value of the money itself ever exceeds the face value of that money then you have a really big problem with with that as a as a currency of of exchange what i mean by that is if you have a silver dollar and it's got five dollars worth of silver in it yeah are you going to use it to buy one dollar worth of goods or are you better off to melt that down for five dollars worth of silver yeah which is that one of the i'm sure there are several but is that one of the reasons that moving to a paper currency system 
gained popularity? Yeah, that's that's one of the that's absolutely one of the reasons. It's a it's a huge reason, in fact. Um, we're we're a little ahead of ourselves, but yeah, a hundred percent. There there are a lot of issues with um, inherent uh, value stored within within money, and we'll we'll talk about a few of them. But yeah, the the paper currency does help to sort out a lot of that. I've definitely had times in various types of classes where people have talked about like a like a barter based economy, right? It's usually raised as sort of like a pre-modern uh, example of how you know, usually more in a, in a in a social contract sort of way than necessarily an economic way. But I, I'm sure often used as a as an example in economics as well. For our purposes, a barter-based economy is a myth. Oh. We don't have any records of any societies working purely off of a barter system. Well, I mean, given given the definitions you just gave, that. If- that on its face makes sense just because it sounds really complicated to try and maintain one. Mm-hmm. We have, we have um, you know, other types of economies that are not strictly money-based, but barter itself is not, like we, we figured out a very, very, very long time ago that that's not the best way to, to make things work. Um, right. There are limited scale versions of this. So, you know, going to a farmer's market is, is still a place where people are bartering for, you know, like for like goods and limited contact between disparate societies. So for example, war reparations are sometimes done on a barter barter basis. Oh yeah. But other than that, like there isn't anyone day to day, like buying a loaf of bread by showing up somewhere with like a, you know, a basket of chickens or whatever. It's just impractical. Good old basket of chickens, best store of currency ever. You know, it's it's got its problems. Um, you know, this is already something that's being acknowledged as a thought experiment when Aristotle is writing about it over two thousand years ago, as like wow. maybe this is a way a, ci- a civilization could have existed, but like we have no idea about any of those. There's evidence of gift economies, which I find really interesting. Um, it's this idea of a society, and it's got to be a very small society. Everyone has to know everybody, but it's the society where goods and services are given without explicit solic- solicitation of payment. So, mm. you know, you uh, you have a leaky roof, and uh, somebody's just going to come over and thatch it for you, and don't worry about it. But maybe remember who helped you out. Yeah, that sounds really complicated and terrifying. It is, but the societies that work under those rules tend to be pretty... There's a lot of unspoken rules and everyone understands the game for the most part. And that's why it sounds terrifying. (laughs) Fair enough. Um, But yeah, there is this implicit expectation of social debt, right? Like you do stuff for people and then they kind of... It's kind of like the Godfather... You ask Which famously worked out well for everybody involved. Mm-hmm. You ask him for a favor, he does it for you, and all he asks is that you remember it. And someday he's going to ask you for a favor in return. No problem. What could go wrong? I mean, what ends up happening there is that instead of like accumulating wealth through, you know, physical currency or through notes on a ledger, however you want to note it. What ends up happening is that social status rises with your ability to give other people gifts. Right. It's like this communal safeguard, though, too, because it's this way of transferring resources within the society, you know, making sure that everybody's needs are covered, but without just like expecting no one to, 
you know, accumulate status, right? Um, if somebody's in need, like, yeah, they can get what they need, but they're going to owe other people either in the future or in, in different types of payment. The agricultural revolution approximately 10,000 years ago or so, um, we kind of alluded to this a little bit, but it necessitates uh, the creation of a debt system. Interesting. You just kind of need stuff up front, right? Like there's there's too much th that goes on in farming, even in very, very basic farming where, you know, you need to put up front a certain amount of capital and it will eventually pay off, but it's going to take time. Yeah. Huh. And once you're well established, ideally you should be able to, oh, for example, keep back some of your harvest for next year's planting rather than buying seeds or, you know, have enough uh, stored up as um, collateral for I don't know, tool breakage, uh, paying wages, things like that, that you can go without too much debt. But realistically, you know, there, there does need to be that system of, of, you know, going into a shop and saying, listen, it's spring. I need this stuff. I will give you the X amount of my harvest at the end of the season and yeah. people being okay with that because it's so agrarian in the beginning and because, uh, agriculture is so fundamental to, uh, most societies, the first, the first currencies of exchange, um, or sorry, the first, the first currencies period are currencies of account, but they're also agriculturally based. So the, the big leap into a currency of account is going from like, I owe you something to like, I owe you X number of something. I owe you one unit of owing. Right. And the way that that really starts is, you know, to some extent livestock, but much more frequently uh, measures of grain. Okay. Everybody needs the barley. Like it's just, it's, it's <laughs> part of your day. You need it. You need a lot of it. And it's interesting to me that in a certain way, the creation of debt is also a mechanism through which surplus production is uh, accounted for in a society. Let me explain what I mean by that. Yeah. If you are a farmer and you're growing only for your own family, you only need a certain amount of food per year. So if you're growing any more than that, theoretically, it's wasted work, right? Like it's going to spoil before you can use it. It's, it's pointless. Why would you ever make any more than that? With trade, you could hypothetically trade that all away to somebody else um, in exchange for whatever goods, but there's a certain issue with using actual physical grain as a, as a method of payment, which is still the spoilage, right? Yeah. Theoretically, you can only accumulate enough currency slash sustenance that you can use it all before it spoils. Otherwise, your money expires. Yeah. So the way that the oldest civilizations that we're talking about here, like we're talking about um, Sumerians, Mesopotamians, like the, the, the oldest ones that we have records about, mm -hmm. the way that they uh, work around this is the oldest records, like the oldest accounting records are more than 7,000 year, years old in Mesopotamia, and they're held by temples who operate granaries. Okay. And the way it works is you grow, 
you know, it'll, it'll be by a weight. Uh, a really common one in the ancient world was a, a the shekel is actually a, a weight of barley. It's a measure of barley as well as a currency. Really? Yeah, that's where that... I did not know that. Yeah, that's where it originates. Um, so you grow, I don't know, let's say 10,000 shekels. I don't know how much weight a shekel is or how much a lot of weight of barley is. I'm not sure. Sorry, I'm just picking a number. What, how, what can barley weigh? 10,000 <laughs> shekels, Michael? <laughs> Precisely. You take all of your barley to the temple that has a granary and you deposit it all physically. You take it there and mm -hmm. a priest working at the temple or rather a scribe working at the temple um, will take a clay uh, tablet and write out what is functionally a receipt saying, <laughs> you know, so-and-so has 10,000 shekels of barley stored here at the temple. And this is where that concept of fungibility comes in because all the barley just goes straight into the granary. Yeah. And then when you come down three days later and you need to withdraw some barley, some shekels, you get a new tablet saying how much you still have left in. As the system kind of progressed, they would move to like denominations of tablets pre-made, ready to go in, in you know, set amounts uh, and just mm -hmm. hand those out and you would turn in a, a tablet and you get some barley out of the granary. And it would be like a, you know, first in, first out sort of system so that barley is always moving through the granary, but none of it's really spoiling because the oldest stuff is what's getting taken out and used. And it just kind of passes right through and it all stays fresh. Yeah, it supports, it seems like it would support more people in a society, mm -hmm. even if they were all farming, um, it would, it would enable them to farm a greater variety of things. Yes, that's very true. Yeah, because you could you could hypothetically buy different types of uh, of food with the with the barley that you've produced, or buy barley with the other foods you've produced. It, it all of a sudden creates that that common base layer, right? And then with the advent of cities about five thousand years ago, a little bit longer, you start getting these complex networks of society where a lot of people don't need to do any farming because they can trade their services for these measures of grain, keep themselves alive, and they never have to touch a plow. Uh, it's, it's really, really essential. But without that careful record keeping, this system does not work. Yeah. You can't grow beyond that base level of like how much can you eat before it spoils. So accountants are the most important profession in history arguably there they, like there, there's an argument to be made for this right like between between agriculture and writing like without one or the other you do not get civilization um mm -hmm. all the earliest writing is 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 accounting it's all keeping track of this stuff for an exchange system so People realize over time that it's not just necessarily these deposits have to be for a specific person. They start essentially using these clay tablets as currency, right? Like you can just give someone your tablet and they can get their own barley rather than yeah. going, getting the barley and paying for physical barley. And that's the next kind of extrapolation into something resembling uh, cash. Yeah. The next really difficult uh sort of um, extrapolation of this is trade with foreigners because you may have your 
barley based economy just humming along and you may run into traders from a, a foreign land who have good, goods that you really like and they just hate barley they've never seen it before they don't know what to do with it besides foreign trade is happening at a larger volume almost by necessity to make it work uh, than what your everyday trade is going to be like so you need to find other acceptable options and so most zones would end up converging on one maybe two commodities they had to be things that are um, mutually valuable between the two societies and it's ideal if they are uh, extremely durable oh well because they're traveling long ways right yeah um you want they, they may have to last for a long time depending on how long it's uh, the, the travel is and it needs to be something that is you know any, anytime something is has got spoilage involved it 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 doesn't necessarily devalue it because that's still probably important things but it makes it less uh resilient to to a trading uh uh, sort of relationship besides if you have to convert something that is like very very low value at its root because you want to you want a currency that can support a pretty low value right like you don't want to be selling uh you know meals for the equivalent of a thousand dollars you want a, a few dollars is, is is kind of what you're looking for here right but yeah. at the same time what you end up with is the equivalent of you know doing trade for large amounts of of resources you'd be kind of trying to pay for it in pennies in a certain way yeah so you need something that is uh more value dense i suppose would be the best way to put that mm -hmm. and have they tried shiny rocks this is exactly where most of them end up usually gold and silver they are uh, pretty to look at, which uh, I'll be honest with you is a bigger factor in human currency than probably most economists would care to admit. <laughs> uh, it, it makes a difference. Most econ textbooks don't start off the history of shiny things. Hmm. And they should. They really, really should. Um, it's nice to look at. It can be used for practical things, but high value practical things uh, like jewelry. Compared to foodstuffs, they're extremely durable. Like you, it doesn't spoil, and when you're talking about gold, it doesn't even tarnish. So, plus you've got a rarity factor in there. There's a lot of things going for uh, for base metals. Mm -hmm. Depending on the era, sometimes it would be, you know, you you could also be trading for uh, less precious metals. So, you know, bronze, copper, uh, even iron occasionally, but. If you had gold or silver to trade with, that was probably your best bet for anything outside of uh, of your immediate area. Yeah, and and iron would actually suffer from the spoilage problem. Indeed, that's exactly right. So this foreign trade would almost always be independent of local currency. So what you would get then was these same temples that were sort of managing our, the local economy would set a fixed exchange rate for whatever commodity was being used for international trade as a mutually agreed upon uh, currency. Right. So we mentioned the shekel earlier that's established about 5,000 years ago. And with that acting as a currency, not just as a receipt, it really uh, accelerates trade in the the fertile crescent area of the world so uh, mesopotamian societies babylonian societies really get going very quickly and become really complex 
very quickly. And um, money is baked into that really early on. So the most well-known and complete one is the Code of Hammurabi, obviously, from from Babylon, um, about uh, 1760 BCE or so. But we do have actually earlier legal codes than that that are partially complete, um, going back to as much as 4,000 years ago. Okay. And I think you're about to talk about how money was baked into the root of those. Yeah, that's right. Um, it encodes, f- uh, for one thing, uh, fines for wrongdoing. So oh. famously, Code of Hammurabi is all about like, it has very, very specific punishments for very, very specific crimes, most of which seem like extremely overblown. Uh, but yeah, it, it starts enshrining uh, monetary fines for uh, legal infractions. Beyond that, it also set maximum amounts of interest on debt, which gives us a picture of just how complex their borrowing and lending system is already at this point. They'd already discovered some min-maxing problems with usury. Yeah, it turns out that uh, that some of those ancient uh, societies found that there's a uh, few things can go wrong when uh, when credit is abused beyond all reason. Uh, yeah, so you could you you could only charge X amount of of in- interest. You, in fact, you can go and look at exactly how much was was being uh, it was being capped at. Um, I think it usually comes around to about thirty percent, which is uh, still very high, but. Uh, must have been much worse if they were calling that reasonable. I guess. And that's still uncomfortably close to modern credit card rates. Oh, so. it's not too far off. Yeah. It also laid out some of the basics of contract law, which is really interesting. No. Not exactly uh, directly money related, but like so many contracts do revolve around money that it's important to have that, you know, enforceability. Mm-hmm. I'm guessing you've probably heard of this, and I'm guessing a lot of listeners have as well, but I, I, it just delights me to no end um, that one of the oldest written complaints in history uh, was found in, in, on, a, on a cuneiform tablet uh, from Babylon, 1750 BCE. Uh, it's just 10 years after the, the, code, was, uh, the code of Hammurabi was written. It's a, it's a complaint written to a man named uh, Ian Asir uh, by someone named uh, Nani, and they had agreed that Nani was going to sell him some some copper, some copper ingots, and they agreed to a quality. And Nani shipped a subpar, bad quality copper. <laughs> and and Nani took time out of his day to write a complaint letter to Ian Asir about how bad the copper was. And it's that's, delightful, and you should go read it. Yeah, that's oddly touching. That's. A connection to so long ago for something that sounds like what would be written on an internet forum is just humanizing. Oh, and it is it is really not that far off. It, it, it truly is not. And But the thing that I find interesting about this complaint is, number one, it, it shows that like trade is not just a sort of ad hoc thing. Like it's not just somebody walking down the street with a, with a bag of coins ready to, you know, buy some, some copper. There's actually like, there are written agreements in place and it's being done, um, asynchronously and, and things like that. Like, like very much just how you would purchase some copper today, to be honest with you. Um, Mm -hmm. and then number two, it's notable that, um, because of the contract law in place and as, and as well as just like the, the, social norms in place. Uh, Nani had already paid Ian Asir. Like he, he 
he left payment with him and has full confidence under again social norms and contract law that because he's paid for a certain thing that he is entitled to exactly what he paid for like it's just a very i don't know i feel like i'm pointing out the obvious here but also i find it so just normalized it's it's so interesting to me how nearly 4000 years ago people were basically doing business exactly the way they would do it now well yeah it's i mean i think it's hard even to have a link to people who lived a few decades ago and view them the same as we are today. Mm. And I think that gets easier the older you get, but still there's there's this sense that black and white video footage means it's just entirely different people. So mm. finding common ground with humans living an entirely different life thousands of years ago, yeah, it's it's way more trippy so mm -hmm. it's wonderful to find those those moments where you do connect and find out that they're just like we were yeah yeah it's it's endlessly fascinating it's 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 always a delight these clay tablets that they're using with the temples obviously are not going to uh last forever um they they have their own issues right clay breaks the general trend uh from from here on out is that money is going to go through a few iterations but it's going to tend towards things that are more uh, durable and more convenient for day-to-day -day, uh, life. Egypt, like four or 5,000 years ago, was using really, really small gold bars, like the extraordinarily extra society that they were. Um, just walking around with a pocket full of gold bars. I mean, you say convenient, but gold is so heavy. It's really heavy. I think they were very tiny. I think they were really, really small, which I, I is is a hundred percent definitely not what I'm imagining. But I, I, I certainly am imagining like the the gold bar shaped, you know, trapezoidal, yeah, like but but really really just, small, yeah. And it's just a really swole society, yeah, all super buff, yeah, exactly. Carrying the money around. That's that's what I like to think about. I know it's wrong, <laughs> but that's okay. In China, they were using small uh, bronze knives or uh, sort of spadehead shaped uh, tokens, and these aren't like functional bronze knives. They're like they're they're designed for trade, um, mm. but they would have been usually cast uh, like on mass for for trade purposes. Um, the idea there being that if it's in a certain shape, it's a little bit easier to like identify that it is uh, whole. And complete. See, there's there's an issue with with selling things in gold bars right? or in, in full bars, right? Which is, oh, it'll go under a number of different names depending on the the, the time period. Um, but generally, would be all falling under the the, the category of debasement uh, of coinage. And what I mean by that is, you know, if if you have a ten dollar bill and you cut off the corner. Uh, what you have is is still ten dollars, and the corner is nothing, right? Like, if you cut it right in half, you don't get twenty dollars. You have two half of a ten dollar. Like, it's it it is complete in and of itself. Is I guess what I'm getting at here. Mm -hmm. If somebody has made a bar of bronze and it is a um, five pound bar and it is worth five pounds of bronze worth, but you you know sort of shave off the end a little bit maybe it's more like 4.9 pounds now 
you could probably still get somebody to accept it as a, you know, a, a universally understood normal weight of bronze, mm-hmm. but you have 0.1 pounds of bronze. It's just kind of created out of nowhere. And if you get enough of those and you know who to sell them to, you can basically make money out of nothing. Yeah. This is a problem for the money supply. <laughs> yeah. So to make something in a shape like a, a, a knife or or a, a spade or whatever that's that's cast that has you know sort of rigid uh, edges, it makes it a lot harder to debase it in any way um, that isn't at least apparent. Yeah, easier to compare to others. Yeah, exactly. Not everywhere is using uh, metals for a currency though. There's actually a lot of um, places, uh, India, Africa that are using, uh, cowrie shells. Uh, do you know what a cowrie shell is? No, that, that term's unfamiliar. Oh, okay. Um, you know, those, um, those pucka shell necklaces, like the white, uh, they look like a little pasta almost like they're, they're kind of football shaped and they're, they're curled in on themselves. Yeah. You know, yeah. If, if it's 1998 and you have frosted tips, you might be wearing one of these. Mm-hmm. You're going to Thailand to change your life. Yeah, that's the ones. Those are those are actually cowrie shells. Okay. The nice thing about using cowrie shells is that you they they are uh, their own unit. You you if you chip a little bit off, you can't form a new cowrie shell out of <laughs> bits of cowrie shell. <laughs> yeah. Now, you know, there there are other issues that are involved, namely they can be found in nature, but like I mean for the for the worth of them, it's probably not really worth it to most people to go hunting for cowrie shells but to use as a low denomination currency you know they're um as long as they're broadly accepted and uh understood to have a specific value why not okay so they'd be kind of equivalent to like a penny where it's not worth it to try and unless you're very poor it's not worth it to try and like find uh as it were counterfeit ones uh, but it's still on mass as, as useful as a unit of exchange. Yeah, essentially. And and that's where you get into sort of a, a fiat currency sort of thing. Fiat? I never remember how, to, how it's actually pronounced fiat. I, I go with fiat. That's what I, yeah. Anyway, um, yeah, it's, it's a fiat currency though because it has no intrinsic value necessarily other than what's agreed to on mass, right? Like this is where that whole like money isn't real thing starts creeping into the equation. I don't know. If you go back to 1998, I think you'll find it has tremendous value. <laughs> a lot of lot of social currency built mm-hmm, in. Mm-hmm. Um, and and again, that's not to say that it has no value because as soon as the value is agreed upon, it's it's real. But um, and you know, we could also talk about the reality of the value of gold or silver or whatever. But you know, anyway, that way lies madness. So we're going to leave that alone. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Point being, you know, th- these these currencies start coming up because they're portable, because they're uh, useful, uh, and because they're they're widely agreed up- upon. And, and the money and, and the and the metal ones are, you know, the, especially the bars. The the other way that bars can be debased, uh, and I didn't bring this up before, is you can take something like uh, gold, trim some off, melt it down cut it with a less precious metal up to the weight that it's supposed to be. Right. And then you can pretend like it's actually that amount of that precious metal. Um, so essentially changing the percentage of purity on it. And that's harder to detect. It's really tough. Yeah, because you're treating something that's in, inherently uh, 
infinitely divisible, you're treating it as something that is an integer in value. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Um, there are ways of detecting this that are developed, but they're really they're they're tricky. You need to be um, kind of an expert in it. Something called a touchstone. It's like a, a really hard uh, black, um, like like a fine grain. Uh, it, it's a stone. Like it's it's really it, it's got a bit of a rough surface to it, almost like a fine grain um, sandpaper. And when you rubbed a metal across it, it would leave a certain color depending on the purity of the metal. And so it would come with samples of known percentages of purity and you could compare uh, a sample to your, your known sample and, and sort of uh, assay the, uh, the value based on that. that. That sounds like something you'd buy in an infomercial nowadays. Yeah, kind of. And like a goldsmith's going to know how to use it. But like if you're going down to the market, you're not carrying a touchstone with you. Like that's not that's not a reasonable yeah. uh, uh, precaution for a regular person to make or to take. So there's all these uncertainties. The solution to this is sort of arrived at somewhat independently in three different places around the same time. And that that solution is coins. They show up in China, uh, 7th century BCE. And coins in China are cast bronze discs, and they'll have a hole through the middle. And they'll usually have some sort of uh, marking usually on one side. And the reason mm. they have the hole through the middle is that they, the easiest way to carry them, if you have a lot of them, is to thread them onto a string and just have these ropes right. of coins that you carry with you. Yeah. Because they're... Much as with the necklaces in 1998. You know, there is a lot of uh, uh, speculation that those come from bronze cast cowrie shell replicas that were sort of an intermediary <laughs> step. So you're not as far off as you'd like to think. Oh, man. <laughs> I hate when jokes turn into facts. <laughs> it's the worst, isn't it? Um, so you have these coins threaded. Yeah, they're, they're bronze, so they're not really worth that much. So you have to carry a lot of them. That is that is one of the big problems with those coins. But they come in small denominations, so prices can be granular, which is nice. The fact that they're cast is also a, kind of a bonus here because coin clipping becomes very obvious um, because right. the edges are pretty regular. Uh, it's a little bit easier to tell if a, if an edge is if a little bit of the edge has been clipped off. Um, so uh, you know, successful in some uh, in some ways, uh, difficult to use in some others. In India, at about the same time, something called punch coins uh, come up, and those are there, there's some there's some debate as to whether they're independent from the coins that come up uh, at the same time in uh, in the Aegean, like around Greece. Some people say that they're they're Greek inspired. Other people say that they're independent. But you know, it, it, I don't know. It, this is a this is an archaeology fight, not a not a history fight. Um, yeah, these are basically they would take um, ingots of silver and they would use these uh, shears to cut them until cut them down until they were at the proper weight. So they would have really irregular um, edges. And then they would take a really, uh, and they're, they're made of silver. Uh, and then they would take a uh, harder metal uh, punch and with a hammer, like um, strike the coin, uh, leaving a design in one side to show that they were uh, an official coin. Okay. And then you have like a like a standard denomination of, of currency to use 
you don't have to worry about weighing out the 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 silver at any point however that does make them very susceptible to uh coin clipping yeah uh, and then, as I mentioned, uh, around the same time, 7th century BCE, uh, Greek coins uh, are made of uh, various precious metals, depending on the denomination. They're particularly fond of um, electrum, which is a mix of gold and silver. Oh, really? Yeah, it's it's worth less than gold so that you can have an actual usable coin. Um, but it helps to mitigate some of the um, tarnishing uh, aspects of the silver. Mm-hmm. Plus, again, it looks nice. Um, again, you got you got to keep it in mind. It's going to come back. So they would actually take it and heat it up, and then hammer an insignia into both sides. So they'd put it in between two different dies, and so when you strike it, it would both sink into the bottom one and have an impression pushed into the top uh, side of the coin. Mm-hmm. Um, and really, those coins are in a lot of ways the ancestors of most modern coinage today um they would often have a head on one side they would have it in various denominations instead of expecting everyone to use one single denomination of coin for everything uh you know there's a lot of there's a lot of uh features that come up in in greece at that point that are are kind of still with us to this day uh with coinage would the coins have different values that would actually have different intrinsic values like larger or or different ratios of gold and silver yeah that's right yeah so different sizes and different mixes of metal would give you different denominations okay interesting that it was that early that interest that introduces a really difficult problem which is um it requires a fixed ratio of value between gold and silver to maintain because if you have different uh denominations of coin made of different metals and the ratio of those coins is one thing but the ratio of those metals is a different thing then it can again promote debasement of the currency um, where your currency might be worth more than its face value as a material as a commodity right so around the time that this coin technology shows up in greece there's another more social change that comes up around money which is that this is the first time you start seeing the production of money start moving away from the temples and into the domain of more civic authorities and sometimes even private authorities. So up until now, were the temples still intrinsically uh, integrated with the granaries and was it still related to the uh, agricultural side of things? Yeah, I mean, it, it continues to abstract away from that. Um, they they start, it, it's, it's almost more like they're running those two services side by side, but because it had originated from the same place, they were trusted to do both, okay. uh, if that makes sense. It, it's just that the, um, the abstraction of the idea of like a currency, like a unit of value um, as having some sort of backing is so fundamental to the creation of money that they keep doing those same two things and it stops being about you know you put in 10 measures of barley and here's your thing for 10 measures of barley it starts being we make money also we store barley we'll switch your barley for money and (laughs) you know what i mean like it's 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 almost as much a paradigm shift as it is a functional shift in in um procedure yeah now that 
now that the concept of having the unit of account is established and everyone has some confidence in the system, they don't need to be as directly linked. Right. And there's that, um, there's that added aspect of, of circulation of the currency. Yeah. Um, it's not just grain goes in, receipt comes out, receipt goes in, grain comes out. It's, you know, receipt comes out and trades hands 15, 20, 50 times before it comes back in for any sort of trade or may not ever go back in at all. Back to what I was saying though, the um, people start minting coins, individuals start minting coins occasionally with their own faces on it because they realize that it's faces that people are going to see every day. And it's also really great advertising as in like, I have enough gold to make a whole bunch of coins that people can just carry around in their, their grimy pockets all day. Mm-hmm. It's really great personal advertising. Um, but there's also a measure of like personal trustworthiness that's tied up in that. As in, if someone has a strong enough brand as a rich person who can create money, then they can. Right. Right. But if it's a if it's a bid, like if they're not sure that it's gonna work properly and it fails, it's not because they didn't actually have the gold, it's because the trust behind it doesn't stand. And what I mean by that is like the coins are never going to like not be used. But if you get a weird looking coin that somebody's trying to pay you for for goods with that you don't recognize, you might go, ah, seems like gold, but I don't really know this one. Tell you what, you need to pay 20% extra and we'll call it even. Right. And then you at least have the metal that you could potentially melt down if it wasn't legitimate. Right. And that public uh, trust in it is like a, a core uh, aspect of that because you can mint something and say that it's worth a certain amount, but people are only going to accept it as far as they actually value it, um, mm-hmm. which is a tricky concept to get your head around at first, but it, it makes some sense when you think about how people treat this stuff in the real world. Thankfully, we learned this lesson and uh, never lead, needed to learn it again, especially not when it comes to words like blockchain. No, 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 no. Nothing along those lines. Don't worry about that stuff. That's, that's listen, that's within the last 20 years. So you and I don't have to go on record about it. How does I that should, sound? I should probably stop inflaming things. Please proceed. <laughs> uh, no, it's all good. It's all good. Um, and then, uh, yeah, it's not just individuals that are doing this. Um, civil authorities are doing this. Remember, we're talking about Greece in a time where it's fragmented between city-states and, you know, the Athenians are going to have a different type of money going on than uh, the Spartans or whoever else. And so you get a fairly complex trade in currency in between these places who are very closely linked but also distinct um, entities. But what it means is that it ends up tying civil wealth, like the wealth of a society, directly to the, you know, the material success of a state. And by that, I mean, your, your state in a certain way can only get as wealthy as the actual precious metals that it controls. Yeah. 
And that can lead to some really big moves that are caused by those reserves increasing or decreasing. So, for example, in the middle of the second phase of the um, the Persian, uh, the Greco-Persian Wars, uh, 483 BCE, Athens discovers a massive deposit of silver uh, in their territory, and with the additional uh, silver that's added to the uh, the monetary system, they're able to greatly increase their naval power. Like they spend it all on boats, and. <laughs> Uh, that naval power is basically what gives them the edge to form uh, the Delian League, the, the Athenian Empire, that uh, is going to dominate that part, part of the world for the next several decades. They just found money in the ground, <laughs> you know? But that's how it goes when you have zero abstraction from the uh, the commodity of it. Yeah. Yeah, they, they found boats in the ground. Uh, essentially, Yeah. You know, and, and coin becomes synonymous with money for the next two millennia. It is it is the best money technology we have for a, a very long time. You know, this is where we start developing ancient banking, which starts as, as money changers in markets, right? Like those people who are going, oh, you want to pay in uh, you want to pay an Athenian coin? Okay, but tell you what, for a small percentage, I'll switch that into local coin so you don't have to deal with the haggling. Um, at a fixed rate, at a at a reasonable uh, percentage um, uh, fee for the change, right? And mm-hmm. those people start selling loans. Uh, they start holding funds for people because they have uh, invested in the the physical security required for that. Roman banking, when 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 Rome ascends, becomes even more complex and specialized. So you have separate types of people handling and. Uh, creating and deciding policy about money. So there's the Argentarii, which is from the the root word of of silver, right? Like Argent. Yeah. They are starting off as money changing. They're uh, doing uh, limited credit work, but they're also assaying currency to make sure that it hasn't been debased, that it's actually worth what it says that it's worth. Uh, You have the expectores, which are the accountants, they're doing the financial record keeping of things. They're doing more extensive loans for the the you know moderately wealthy or for businesses. Um, the the truly wealthy had their own financial uh, systems. Um, you know, not like today. There was like a real two tier system for the for the very very wealthy uh, oh. to go through. <laughs> wow, that must have been terrible. Uh, there's the mensarii who are state bankers, and they are basically the closest thing that the Romans had to social safety net, I suppose. Um, they're like a state-run loan system where uh, they realize that every time there's, a say, a natural disaster or a war or something like that, there's a significant amount of unrest afterwards because people have lost their entire lives and I guess are upset about that for some reason. Um so what the mensari I would do is go in after one of these disasters and work with people to give them state loans to get back what they need to get back on their feet. And then, you know, there, there would be state set interest rates for paying this stuff back at what would be uh, considered to be a, a generous uh, interest rate. And as much as that sounds kind of exploitative, it's a lot more than these people were getting before this institution existed. Yeah, I'm sure would have been usurious loans and mm. they'd have to pay it. Oh, yes. Oh, 100%. But it's 
that or death, basically. Um, mm. Not not to not to forgive anything, but this is this is technically an improvement over over the prior system. Uh, yeah. And then you have the uh, Numelari, who are these really only show up in the late Roman Empire when they start having real money problems. They actually began as as minters. All they did was was strike coin. But as uh, monetary policy in the Roman Empire becomes more and more important, they end up actually edging out basically all those other types of financial services. They end up uh, giving out the loans. They end up uh, doing the money changing. They end up uh, doing all the financial record keeping, the tax collection, all of that stuff. Uh, Comparison points to cryptocurrency are so tempting. They're always, they're right there. uh, you know, to, to the, I think I think the reason I'm doing this topic now is is partially the the the, the state of the economy today, as, <laughs> as they like to say. Like the the we're we're going through such crazy uh, inflation right now, but also all of this stuff with crypto the last few years I, I think has made everybody curious about the the mechanics of of money uh, in ways they probably haven't been for a long time, myself included. And it's kind of like, well, you know. <laughs> Have none of these lessons been learned already? And it, I mean, it turns out, yeah, most of them have. But um, it, it's still really interesting to to look back at all of this stuff, right? For sure, and that's a it's a, r- a really good excuse for everyone to learn about the fundamentals mm. of something so basic to our society. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I wanted to ask you're at the point of talking about the Romans, mm-hmm. and you had mentioned essentially the deflationary nature of precious metal based money systems and the Athenians finding that silver mine, are we already at the point where the desire to increase the money supply is fueling wars of conquest to, to new lands? Oh, absolutely. We're, we're long past that point. I mean, uh, yeah. a lot of the, 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 when, when you look at the, the sort of charting the course of, of Rome, uh, as as a as an overall society, you know, there's there's a few wars at the beginning that are kind of thrust upon them, and when they're successful in them, you know, specifically the Punic Wars, uh, they just kind of keep going from there. And what you really do see is a lot of those are explicitly expansionary, um, and and sometimes that is to have more land to put people on, and and you know, do domestic things like grow food and and live but sometimes it is uh pretty explicitly financial um when you look at the conquest of spain for example where uh famously it was it was um extremely rich in silver mines that was largely uh to be able to have enough uh precious metal to to have a functioning Currency. I mean, there's lots of other reasons there too. Spain uh, has has great farmland and things like that. There are obviously uh, uh, political reasons behind all of this, but the the silver mines are are sure attractive. And who doesn't like a good triumph? Well, it goes without saying. And then, I mean, there's there's even even less savory uh, motivations than that behind uh, you know some of the the wars in Gaul where they're basically there to uh, capture slaves that they can then sell to other civilizations for, you know, hard currency. Um, right. So yeah, I, I mean, keeping that, that money supply going is, is a key aspect of Roman, both foreign policy and monetary policy. It's, it's really wrapped up one in the same for a long time. And interestingly enough, what you see is 
while Rome is in its most expansionary phase, Roman currencies hold pretty steady in terms of valuation. And once that expansion starts slowing down or even uh, reversing, uh, they run into pretty significant monetary issues. And that kind of brings us to the, the next thing I wanted to talk about, which is uh, they call it the crisis of the third century. And honestly, we could I, I could do a full episode on it. In fact, I might at some point. Um, mm-hmm. It's really, really interesting stuff. But it, it, there's there's a lot of things go very, very wrong in a very short period for Rome. You know, the, the, the government falls a lot in this period. Uh, they have a year of the six emperors in here, which gives you an idea how things are going. Yeah, that's rough. And they also have a, um, they're in the midst of a system where uh, the Praetorian Guard as, a, as an organization has a disproportionate amount of power in deciding the direction of Rome, who is emperor, all of that stuff. Like it's, it's essentially a military dictatorship with, with puppet emperors for a lot of this, this period. The thing about having the praetorian guards picking the next emperor is that if you want to be emperor you need to pay the praetorian guards a lot of money nah. rome's currency like the, the the basis of of the the currency is the the denarius right like that's kind of your your everyday um denomination the original denarius like you know maybe second century bce sort of thing was about 4.5 grams of silver and it was almost pure silver at that point and, you know, by the time you get to Julius Caesar, you're down to about 3.9 grams of silver cut with some other metals. Uh, and they're, they're doing this to try and like stretch the money supply. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's causing inflation, right? If you put less of the precious metal in each coin, then each coin is worth less and has less buying power because proportionally more coins on the market mean um, more money availability, which means the prices go higher. And, you know, up until this point, inflation wasn't like a, a serious concern for the most part. Currencies tended to hold pretty steady. And the biggest disruptions were influxes of currency causing devaluation to some extent. This type of thing where they're continually debasing currency and causing inflation that way, that's that's a little bit new. So... By the time you get to um, the end of the third century, this crisis, the denarius was about 2% silver. Oh my. <laughs> the, 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 rest, the rest was other metals. Could, could you see it? <laughs> that seems like the coins would just look entirely different. Well, the, oh yeah, they, they were. But the reason for that is that they would continually or continuously recall them and recast them at lower and lower percentages because right. they were casting coins to pay the Praetorian Guard for emperorships. And they right. needed, like, they wouldn't take payment in anything other than coin. So, by, yeah, we're talking about a, a currency that loses all confidence um, from the general public. They essentially stop using currency as currency for a couple of decades at the end of the third century that's a bad place to be for society it's real real bad they basically revert to like a credit-based system 
and yeah, like I said, for, for a couple of decades, it basically requires multiple monetary reforms and the creation of all new uh, denominations in order to just restore confidence with the, the public. They couldn't even call it a denaria, uh, denarius anymore um, yeah. because nobody trusted a denarius. So there's there's a couple of lessons to be learned from there. I mean, Rome bounces back for a little while and then, you know, it's going to do the whole fall in the West thing, yada, yada, yada. We all know the story, whatever. But like there's a couple of really important lessons that come out of the, that specific crisis, you know, where they're casting more and more coins to pay for an emergency situation. And it, it kind of has the uh, the opposite intended effect. So. Lesson number one would be that slow inf inflation is actually pretty tolerable uh, as long as there's reasonable adjustments over a long period of time, right? We did see a lot of inflation due to debasement for the first mm. 200 years or so of the Roman Empire, and nobody was too concerned about that. Everyone kind of accepted that as course of, like, due course, right? Yeah. Uh, lesson number two, the opposite is also true. Fast inflation is completely unsustainable. It does not work. People don't like when things uh, are, are very, very suddenly worth a very, very different amount of money. Number three, it taught us that inherent value of currency is important for trustworthiness. So when something is made of something inherently valuable, people are more likely to trust it and that the opposite is true, right? And point number four is that without inherent value, a currency can work, but confidence is paramount. Its value is entirely in trustworthiness. Right. So those are things we learned uh, 17, 1800 years ago and never had to learn again. Thank goodness. <laughs> Has not been an issue since. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the collapse of the Western Roman Empire leads to a reversion to like local authorities minting coins of dubious quality and and uh, uh, confusing uh, worth. There really isn't a lot going on in Western Europe money wise until, you know, Charlemagne, the, the, the Holy Roman Empire. Part of his reforms in 800 CE or so is the creation of what he called the silver penny which was the only official currency of Europe between about the years 1800 and 1200. So oh, wow. good long run there. It was, it had terrible standardization, different places were making it in different denominations, but at least they all got on the same page for a little while, which is kind of interesting. Hmm. And yeah, it's, it's kind of quiet, at least in, in Europe for a while there. Uh, but it really, really is coin is is king in all of this, right? You need a piece of metal with somebody's face on it uh, for people to really respect and understand that that value. That makes sense. People, ideas are are powerful, but for day to day things, for for connecting with day to day ideas, have, having something physical is much easier for most people to interact with and interface with. Yeah, I think so. Substance is important. Um, I think this would be a good place to take a break for a little bit. And um, when we come back, we can zoom out a little bit and check out what is going on in uh, a couple of other portions of the world, uh, money-wise, and uh, what they've been up to. Okay. I'm back on HI 101 here with Dan McGinnis. Hello. 
and we've been talking money. Uh, coins mostly up until this point, or, or other, uh, you know, small bits of metal has is, is kind of been the way to go, uh, or so it seems. But, um, you know, there are drawbacks to coins. Um, we talked a little bit about coin clipping, which is where you can kind of uh, futz with the value of everything, right? You can kind of make value out of nothing. Um, having an intrinsic value for your, your token is a problem, but also not having a token uh, or not having a value for your token can be a problem if there's a crisis of confidence. So it's kind of a damned if you do, damned if you don't sort of situation. But another problem with coins is that they're heavy and annoying. <laughs> like if you got a lot of them, it's not a it's not a great system uh, for trade. You wouldn't want to, I don't know, buy a car with coins that would suck that would be bad yeah people try to find ways around here and there and it's it's tricky because it's an abstraction of value and every time you abstract the value um you end up relying a little bit more on trust again right like you have to trust whatever that abstraction is is worth as much as the, the value that you're assigning to it and that somebody else is going to agree with you. And that can be a, um, a risky thing. Let's bounce back over to, to China. Um, we've mostly been talking about coins made of silver uh, in Europe. Silver is relatively stable. Um, you know, it does tarnish, but it doesn't rust away the way that, uh, you know, iron would. It's also valuable enough to sort of have a value in and of itself, but it's plentiful enough that you can make enough coins for a society to use out of it. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's generally seen as, a, as, as the best option for most monies. But in China, they've been working with very low value metals for their coins. Uh, copper, bronze, sometimes uh, even iron coins. And like we discussed with some other smaller denomination things, it does allow for granularity, which is nice for trade. But it just means that you're carrying so many coins. There were traders who were basically trading in 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 ropes of coins, like they'd, they'd count a certain number onto uh, each string of coins and, and trading it that way. But it's like it's heavy. It's metal. It's a big it's a big mm. ring of metal. It sucks. People started around 7th century CE or so in China to use uh, promissory notes rather than the coins themselves. This is functionally just an IOU, right? Um, yeah. I'm going to buy this thing. I'm going to take it with me. Uh, here's a note. Uh, come by my estate later, and one of my servants will give you all the coins that are listed here. And these are personally guaranteed. They're one-time use. Um, they're generally more of what you would call a bill of exchange than a true banknote, uh, meaning that they're limited in who can collect them. Right. It's it's essentially a receipt, is what it is. Uh, it, it's it's not really much more complicated than that. And yet, this is a step down a road that we haven't taken in the West at all. Part of the re it, it's not as though you know contracts for money didn't exist in the West or anything like that. But anything being like widespread or being in widespread use like this is is just functionally not happening. Part of the reason for that is just a very functional one, which is 
Europe didn't really have paper for many centuries after it was developed in China. Right. In fact, paper as we know it doesn't really show up uh, until the 11th century in Europe. Before that, you're using parchment generally, uh, which is basically a, a really finely stretched leather. Um, mm-hmm. And then there's there's other there's other options out there that are just not very durable. They're not inexpensive enough to use for something like this. It's it's writing on stuff is is still a big pain in the West. But as paper production becomes more common in China, and you know they realize how how useful it is for uh, for things like contracts, the dots start connecting themselves a little bit. By the 11th century. The Chinese government actually starts issuing uh, centralized banknotes, and those have gone, gone through a number of changes. Uh, they're called uh, jiaoji, and they are, you know, they have official government seals. They are standardized denominations. They are, you know, the the number of them in circulation is con- controlled by the government, so that they can exercise a little bit of control over things like inflation. Uh, there, there's a lot of uh, added benefits in terms of what the state can do to regulate money. That printing a value on a piece of paper and saying this is what I owe you uh, can afford them. Was there a difference in how centralized the state was in China versus where the West was with centralized governments? Oh, certainly. Yeah, yeah. It was it was much more centralized in China at this point. They're they're still kind of reeling from the fragmentation of the. The collapse of the um, of the Western Roman Empire. I mean, you know, Charlemagne's attempt at, at uh, Holy Roman Empire in 800 doesn't really stick beyond about his grandkids. Europe fractures again after that, and it's really only around the 11th century that there's uh, the beginnings of of any uh, real unification uh, in in Europe again into some of the larger states that we would know. Okay. And, and like the uh, the tradition of uh, the Confucian state is alive and well in China at this point, right? And, and that comes with a a large and very stable bureaucracy and, and apparatus. Yeah, certainly. That's 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 a completely fair assessment of the whole thing. Um, okay. There's also there's also the fact that um, China was going through a similar uh, crisis that Rome had gone through in the third century, which is that they were running out of the actual metals needed to uh, create enough currency to, you know, just operate on a day-to-day level. They were, uh, they were low on copper. Right. They realized that it's a little bit easier to keep a whole bunch of copper in a centralized location and say, sure, we'll owe you that with a piece of paper than it is to actually take all that copper, allow it out into circulation where people can, you know, hoard it uh, or lose it or melt it down for other purposes. All sorts of bad things can happen when it's out in the grubby hands of the public, right? So <laughs> this this yeah. gives them greater control over just exactly what value is contained in the nation's uh, money, money supply. But is the issued currency still fully backed by copper reserves one to one yep it okay. is every every bit of currency is a one to one promissory note for uh, an actual uh, unit of metal that that little innovation is is a is a couple centuries away yet 
Um, but so it is, it is very much a real representation of the value inherent in the, uh, the Chinese kingdom. It's just, it's abstracted out into paper and you know what, if a piece of paper gets destroyed, it's easy enough to, um, it's easy enough to make a new one. A lot of these are being made with like woodblock prints so they can be made quickly and efficiently, but it's also the sort of thing that it's really difficult for. I wouldn't say really difficult. It's a pain to try and forge a woodblock that's going to give the same results. But it's still very possible. So I know a really common question at this point is, you know, but why couldn't anyone just print their own notes? And there is actually a really good answer to that. There are so there, there's so much paper being used for money that there is actually a deficit of paper availability in china because of it oh they just started diverting all the paper to be money to the point that the state had to uh make their own paper mills that was devoted (laughs) entirely to paper money it's not just paper money there's there's other things that the state is using paper for right like writing laws uh creating contracts uh other sorts of certification are all going on paper and and so that was already taking a lot of uh, a lot of paper, as as you mentioned, the bureaucracy is is quite robust. But when you enter paper currency into the mix, um, yeah, all of a sudden there really isn't actually all that much out there, and it would probably not be worthwhile. I'm not going to say you couldn't make anything, but for the amount of money it costs to buy paper at market <laughs> rates to then forge paper bills, it actually wouldn't be a terribly profitable endeavor to just make currency. You oddly get almost into the intrinsic value problem, but with paper. Almost. There's there's a weird scarcity thing at play there, and it's clearly not going to last for all that long, but, you know, it, it does exist. Not long after this, you know, in the 12th century, you start getting into some of the stuff that people will point to as, as and, and I, honestly, I have in, in earlier episodes, stuff that people will point to as early versions of, of the modern banking system uh, with the uh, Knights Templar and the Crusades. Basically, what they were doing was they realized that all these very wealthy knights going to war uh, in the Holy Land uh, were traveling on some very, very uh, dangerous roads. And they also did like to carry a lot of money with them. And they were getting robbed a lot, and this is a problem. <laughs> so, what they did was set up basically a, a deposit account sort of system where you are leaving from, oh, I don't know, you're, you're leaving from Lyon and you're going to uh, Jerusalem. And instead of carrying all this gold with you, uh, you go to the local uh, stronghold of Knights Templar and you say, uh, I'm going to leave this gold with you. And they go, great. And they give you a piece of paper that says so-and-so has deposited X amount of gold. We're right back to the whole granary deposit system, right? Yeah. And then they can carry that with them, except it'll have their name on it so that when they get to the Holy Land, they can get their gold back or, or rather get some gold back uh, from the Knights Templar who are who are local there. But if they get killed along the way, um, nobody else can claim it. So why would they? Right. Why would anyone hold them up for that? Right. You have to show your driver's license to the Knights Templar mm. in order to redeem. Yeah, yeah of course. So. That is another way that people are starting to kind of come sideways at the idea of 
paper money, there's there's sort of a, a number of places where value being printed, like just written down, is being treated as analogous to real value currency that is priming people for uh, that that concept, right? That that concept of fiat currency. This is people are so used to money of exchange in their their day to day life, to use our terms from the first half, that seeing it kind of tilt towards a money of account, something that's just down in a ledger, this is kind of getting their toes wet with that idea. Right. There's a lot going on in the Islamic golden age as far as banking innovations, but as far as like the technology of money is concerned, it's sticking pretty close to the whole coinage system that we've we've become familiar with. So, um, really? yeah, the, the banking system becomes very, very complicated, but it's still being carried out mainly with coins. So that's that's really the only reason that we're not going to spend a lot of time uh, in that portion of the world. OK, because I, I think that the, the next big thing that comes up is really trade down the Silk Road uh, starts putting the West into contact with some of those uh, innovations from China. Notably, uh, Marco Polo, when he visited in the 13th century and then wrote his uh, questionably accurate memoirs, uh, he actually has an entire chapter in The Travels where uh, the the chapter is called uh, How the Great Khan Causeth the Bark of Trees Made into Something Like Paper to Pass for Money All Over His Country. Okay. Which is compelling. You got to hand it to him. I want to read that chapter. Yeah. And I do like that there's a, a an element of like, can you believe they think paper is money? Yeah. Like there's this like, yeah, yeah, it's a little bit on display. But what actually happens is he, you know, these traders, not not just him, but but other um, Italian traders get back to Europe and they go like, actually, this seems like a really good idea. Like yeah. we're we're working this system where we're we're trading goods through this this chain of people. Uh, across the continent and it's really dangerous and there's a lot of people get robbed and and all of this stuff it would be nice if there was some sort of way that we could store and transport value you know a little more safely a little more portably Uh, all of those things seem like a, a pretty good idea actually and so italian traders start replicating that that concept of like the the promissory note that is a little bit more wide open, you know, whoever holds this is entitled to the value of X and using that for trade, uh, especially within uh, Europe. By the time you get to like the 14th century or so, these these bills are fairly widely used. It's not exactly a banknote because they are still being personally guaranteed by somebody. Okay. But at the end of the day, you should, as long as you have the right type of banknote, be able to turn up somewhere and collect the full value that is being promised on on these notes. Okay, and would that be primarily in, in very trade-heavy places like Venice, or yeah, would this be more widespread than that? Yeah, trade trade-heavy would be about the right uh, idea. You know, we're still talking about a one-to-one backing here. It's still an abstraction of hard currency of like coin of, of actual right. valued metal but you know at the same time as the level of trust and familiarity grows with it so too does the level of trust in the certificates themselves as having value and then at that point what's the difference between trading with them and trading with coin 
Yeah. Okay. Values have stayed pretty steady through Europe for a, a fairly long time. The general idea in terms of like monetary policy, basically since the Roman Empire, has been essentially price fixing. Um, things mm-hmm. things should have a set value. It would be bad for things to go above their set values. It causes societal problems. Is that kind of a consequence of the crisis of the third century, or uh, even is that just a broader learning? Even even earlier uh, pricing issues, there were there were significant problems with the understanding of money in you know throughout the entire Roman Empire. That you know the, the third century is more like uh, chickens coming home to roost than necessarily its own distinct issue I, I mean there were acute right. causes as well but like just an understanding of of monetary policy and and how you know real life trade interacts with state mandated values was was hazy at best okay so the way that uh rome tended to deal with that was rather than finding good ways to uh, account for things like uh, inflation was to simply mandate what the proper price was and never allow it to change, which caused you know other problems. It, it, and it's not just money that they did this with. Like there was a there was an issue with uh, you know population growth and people being too uh, upwardly mobile in society that they handled by basically saying whatever job your your father had that's the job that you have to have, <laughs> um, and that was just how the rest of the empire went you know like it's it's it was not it was not a it was not a a subtle understanding of 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 uh social policy or economics there's a joke in here somewhere about rome being really good at engineering (laughs) yeah yeah it's 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 lurking that's for sure uh so anyway, this is this has been how money has been done for a long time in Europe. Um, the idea is things are worth what they're worth, and they're always going to be worth the same. It is a very flat monetary policy. Then a couple things come up in approximately a 150-year period that turn that all on its head. The first one is the Black Death in 1347 to 1353. Mm-hmm. It causes a number of things to happen on the money side of things. Number one, it causes wealth to concentrate as there are less people, because remember this this you know a third of Europe is is killed in this uh, in this plague. Um, yeah. So yeah, wealth tends to con- concentrate, which means that people have a lot more money to spend, but also demand goes significantly down because there's less people to buy things, and so that just throws everything right off. You know, so there's there's a blip the one way that, that gives everybody a lot more money. And then over the 15th century and into the early 16th century, you get a, a population recovery from all of that um, that leads to what they call a demand pull price jump. So there are more people. Uh, that means that uh, there is less food to go around and therefore the food prices go up. Mm. So it, it yeah, it, it causes some pretty significant uh, inflation over that uh, over that period of time. Is that just broadly Europe wide? Yeah, yeah. It's um, you know there there are spots where it's worse than others, but really it, it's it's affecting the entire continent. Okay. Um, you get increased urbanization in this period, which is a result of some of the social mobility that is afforded as a consequence of the Black Death. Yeah, the the serfs uh, were largely uh, freed uh, from a lot of their obligations. Because 
well, essentially a lot of a lot of lords had so few serfs left that they wanted the ability to bid on other people's serfs. And so a lot of the obligations to stay with the the same lord that you were born with are are removed in this period. And what ends up happening is people don't choose to go be serfs anymore. They tend to congregate in larger settlements where it's a little bit easier to do things like uh, trade or pool resources or build community. Okay. When more people are living in an urban setting, uh, it leads to what economists like to call increased money velocity. Right. Basically, what that means is people are spending money more frequently. And that doesn't necessarily mean more money is being spent. It's just that there are a lot more transactions happening and a single piece of currency is moving through a lot more hands, generally speaking. Mm-hmm. And that's just a consequence of like, you know, if you are a subsistence farmer, you might be buying tools or supplies or whatever two or three times a year. And if you're living in a city and uh, I don't know, you live above a bakery, you might be stopping in every day for a, a loaf of bread. Um, it's it's not necessarily about value. It's more about the uh, the churn of uh, of that that currency. It's effectively a network effect as applied to this particular technology. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way of looking at it. Then on top of all of this happening, you do get European contact with the Americas in the the mid-15th century, um, which is, uh, you know, one of the most disruptive events in in European history um, for many, many reasons, which, uh, you know, many of which I've gone into on this show previously, but the one that's most relevant to us today is that the Spanish immediately begin pulling massive quantities of especially silver out of uh, South America. Mm -hmm. Gold as well, but, you know, the the initial uh, effect of this is that Spain becomes extraordinarily wealthy compared to the rest of Europe. Uh, The second thing that comes of this is that there is so much silver in the market that it fundamentally devalues silver yeah. across the entire European economy. This this whole thing is uh, considered just like a, a seismic um, uh, price correction in, in Europe. It's, it's uh, you know, the, 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 um, the, this introduction of extra silver is going to cause most of the other powers to uh, debase their currency pretty significantly. They want to have enough currency to stand against the amount of currency that Spain has. But while Spain can mint it all from silver and gold, the other powers are minting them from from coins that are a fairly low percentage of actual precious metals and uh, filled up with other things. So that makes those currencies worth less, even in comparison to the, the Spanish stuff. So... It's it's a real mess. Uh, England tries to do this secretly. <laughs> it takes about three months for it to be discovered that Henry VIII was just collecting all the coins into giant coffers and then reissuing all the coins, and they were no longer made of the same metals. I don't know how he thought they were going to get away with that necessarily, but uh, it's, it's Henry VIII. It's really funny that he thought he could. Like, yeah. it's very funny. <laughs> yeah, he thought he could do a lot of things. This is known as the Great Debasement, which I think is is something that Henry VIII may have been proud of. Um, a name he really could have st- stood behind. I, I think he would have liked it. Yeah. So all of these factors, 
it leads to prices multiplying by about six times over the 150 year span that we're talking about here which okay. works out to a horrifying inflation rate of between one and one and a half percent annually inflation oh my goodness <laughs> however did they um, but but again the concept the context that i want to keep in mind here is that they had zero inflation for the most part yeah for, for the most part corrections are happening only when new metals are are introduced into the circulation and with all of those spanish mines like in spain not in the new world uh with all those spanish mines in spain itself having dried up long ago there isn't a lot of mining happening in europe at this point and they don't have a lot of exports to offer to the rest of the world um yeah so if anything metals have been flowing out of europe for the last couple of centuries and and money has been maybe slightly deflating in this time I bet this makes them want to expand a bit. Well, I mean, if if the, the most the most important thing here is that um, the, the the price correction that comes from it makes a lot of those fairly small coins that they were using for everyday stuff uh, a lot less practical. That's really what it comes down to. We're back around to I don't want to carry a lot of change, um, yeah, which is a very relatable feeling. I don't like carrying around a lot of change either. No. I get it. And so, you know, they have this concept of promissory notes that have, have come from uh, traders that have been working with China. They have these ideas of the, um, you know, those those bank notes from the or proto bank notes from the Knights Templar. And people start trying to find more creative ways to store their precious uh, metals in a way that they don't have to carry around so much with it. And what a lot of people will end up with is using um, a fairly unlikely uh, at first blush source for their banking needs, which is goldsmiths. People who were working in gold in this era, in the early modern era, number one, knew how to tell a fake. Mm. Number two, tended to have strong vaults, which was not a common uh, amenity in this, this time period. And uh, number three, had set themselves up as relatively uh, trusted members of the um, of the community because they were occasionally offering uh, loans, like really really small loans, and okay. uh, had the wealth to back them up. Um, so people saw them as as reliable and safe. And so what they started doing was rather than carrying around all these coins that are now worth significantly less, they would deposit these with uh, with goldsmiths and these goldsmiths would start issuing certificates for again essentially receipts you can come and claim your 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 metal whenever you want to right but this time they start doing something different they start noticing that it is almost never the case that they are being asked for all of the gold in their safes back. <laughs> and they think to themselves, well, I mean, if any one person comes, I can always give them their money back. And if any, you know, if 5% of my clients come, I can give all of them their money back. And when you think about it, it actually is a fairly large number of people that would have to all come at the same time before it was an issue. The odds of that. 
what are the chances? Um, this is the introduction of an idea that is known today as fractional reserve banking. And that means that the bank doesn't actually have to have all the money there. They just have to have, you know, enough that on a day-to-day -day basis, they never run dry. And then it's fine, usually. This concept is going to grow uh, and, and become more common and is, in fact, the, the basis of our financial system today. Um, there's some real strengths to uh, allowing fractional reserve banking. Um, mm -hmm. The biggest one being that it allows banks to issue more money than the state's monetary base. So rather than that Chinese system of having a one-to-one -one certificate to metal uh, situation, you know, when the state is running low on copper in, in their case, that's fine. Make a few extra certificates. Who's ever going to know? And the obvious con there is that a bank run could collapse a bank and then no one gets their money. Yeah. Uh, which, which is, and by bank, bank run, I mean, if everyone shows up and asks to withdraw at the same time, uh, you can't pay them all. Um, and that tends to lower confidence, which as we've discussed is kind of a critical factor in, you know, the reality of money. So yeah, like that's, that's bad. That is definitely bad, but the flexibility that's afforded to an economy by extending credit against reserves that aren't there or creating notes against reserves that aren't there actually has a, generally speaking, it has a flattening effect over the volatility of the country's uh, or, or the system's uh, monetary supply. Um, it tends to keep things a little more... Uh, even because, you know, the, the economy can expand and contract with a little bit of elasticity from its actual reserve on hand. Right. And if you were to do a lot of trade in a short period and uh, a bunch of money were to leave the system, that could have a, a cascading effect. And this kind of elasticity would enable a cushion for that kind of impact. Yeah, that's right. And and likewise, uh, the the opposite is true. If a bunch of you know, say say somebody finds a bunch of gold out in California, for example, um, <laughs> being over leveraged on your reserve doesn't. It, it actually provides a protection from all of that precious metal entering the system, devaluing your currency. Because in, in fact, it's just making up the the difference between the reserve and what's actually circulating. And so you're not seeing um, such a massive dip in, uh, in value. Right. So it does have strengths. Now, like we talked about, bank runs, they do become a problem. There are banks that go under at this point um, because of bank runs. And, and confidence is really a problem because when, we're, when we start working with fractional banking, we are talking about individual goldsmiths. Right, like they they do occasionally go out of business. It happens, and right. they will take all of your gold with them if you aren't one of the first ones to withdraw when when that confidence starts to slide. So, how do you protect against bank runs? Is the next question that that, that emerges from this, right? Because um, people are mad because they keep losing their money in these bank runs. <laughs> the answer is a central bank, 
And so you see a rise of central banks in the 17th century. This is the idea that there is a national bank that is separate from, you know, independent financial entities. And what they settle on is that every bank that operates within a within a system has to have a minimum threshold of reserve. So let's say they have to have 40% of whatever they issue in reserve as real precious metals. Um, I'm picking a number here. Um, mm-hmm. They have to leave that in reserve with the central bank and uh, they have to have essentially insurance on the remainder. And then in the event of a bank run, an individual's money that's deposited with that bank is protected because all of the banks have a deposit, a reserve deposit with the central bank that both holds that that central uh, uh, deposit and issues, you know, national currency. So they have more value to play with there. Um, they can cover the losses that would be caused by a bank run uh, above their their mandated reserve because they're holding reserves from every single bank. So it's an extra layer of confidence, an extra layer of protection for the consumer. As long as all banks don't get a run at the same time. Uh Uh-oh. Sure would hate to see that happen, huh? What are the odds? This really kind of shifts the conception of money though, right? Like it, it kind of takes it from that real value of the coins to a to a reflected value, it, it it really bounces it back to those ledgers. It it, it makes uh, money uh, on paper just as real to people as coins in your pocket, right? Which you know, again, if if you really think about it too long, is true, <laughs> just in the opposite way that you would think. Um, yeah, you know, it, it it really gets people used to this idea that that you know, if a bank says that I have that value, then I have that value. And it really it leads us to the first you know modern banknote in 1661 from the uh, the Stockholm Bank. That that run of banknotes fails um, within about three years, actually, mm. uh, in kind of a weird way. Like they were using it's it's because they were using copper, uh, like copper plates. But the manufacturer of all these copper plates caused the the value of them to skyrocket, which. Uh, affected the overall valuation of money uh, metals within hmm. Sweden, which threw everything off and caused a run on the bank. And then, anyway, it's it's a whole. Anyway, money's hard. I guess is is the point <laughs> that I'm trying to make. It's not. It, it seems like it should be simple, but we haven't even today entirely figured it out. And yeah, they the the first try didn't go so well. I guess is is what I'm saying here. Uh, any technology that deals with abstractions has an inherent complexity that can be real tough to deal with at scale. Sure, yeah, absolutely. By 1694, the Bank of England is issuing monopolies to certain banks for what we would call a permanent note. The idea that the note is the money. Um, it's never really... like You could take it to the bank and exchange it for silver, but the money, the paper money, the bank note itself is the currency it's going to circulate in the public until it wears out or is lost or whatever and it will be replaced by uh the bank that issues it right and these are being issued by individual banks um state produced money is a pretty new innovation when it comes to banknotes in particular 
a lot of times it is good for like the bank who is is printing it at this point in time and that's that's not uh singular to england but uh but you know pretty much everywhere is it the case and this is a little speculative but it seems like the concept of using notes for this purpose came via mercantilism through the silk road as you said Mm -hmm. is it the case that meant that the state and the head of state and the aristocracy was less likely to jump on it because it it didn't have the weight of history of of the the real coin based system that it's it's coming from the lower mercantile class that's an interesting question i i don't huh i'm trying to think how best to answer that i i don't I don't think it took the upper classes long to understand that this was a way uh, that they could control uh, the money supply. <laughs> uh, okay, yeah, they're pretty good at figuring that out, actually. Yeah. They, they tend they tend to be pretty quick to glom onto those uh, those concepts. So, uh, regardless of the sort of um, base origins of of things like banknotes, I, I think that it's hard to separate the tendency towards regulation for the sake of confidence and trust and security and the tendency towards regulation for control by those who have the means to do so. Right. It's hard to distinguish those two things, especially with something as intrinsic to both of those ideas as money. Yeah. And, and re- self-reinforcing, I want stability because I want control. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and when we're talking about, you know, something, something much more, oh, I, I'm trying to think of a, I'm trying to think of a good example, but let's say, um, like, uh, food quality, right? Like, like food and drug administration type stuff. Like you can only have X amount of this compound per however much food, that kind of thing is, is a little bit easier to see, um, where, like which way the wind is blowing. Like, is this being done for, um, safety reasons, or is it being done to make this thing as cheap to produce and sell as possible? And even then, it's not always simple, but like it's easier in something like that. Yeah. When it's the money itself, I mean, mm, <laughs> like who who knows who knows what sort of things are happening in in back rooms, right? Yeah. Not not to not to sound overly paranoid about it or anything like that but i more more just to say that i think that the the regulation and the potential for the maintenance of social standing probably go hand in hand with this one okay that's fair around the same time that the bank of england is issuing these bills uh coins also start improving like significantly oh there's there are new uh, techniques uh, developed uh, in France in the 17th century that are basically more or less how we make coins today. They have figured out how to mill metals to a consistent um, thickness using machines. They've figured out how to cut blanks, uh, like coin blanks, from those machines so they're always exactly the same size. They figured out how to do so with a defined and perfectly round edge, so it's a lot easier to see about any uh, tampering. And then they are able to strike them with fairly detailed engravings on both sides, again, using using uh, machinery. 
So it gives you a very clear, um, very regular coin that is much harder to manipulate, or at the least uh, much harder to pass off as unmanipulated. Okay. Notorious nerd Isaac Newton loves this idea. He's uh, given a he's given a, a posting at the uh, Royal Mint in uh, 1696 that's supposed to be basically like a mm, he's padding his resume kind of thing. Like they just sort of gave him the the appointment for because because he's a because he's a good guy kind of thing. Like an honorary position. Yeah, and Newton, being Newton, was like, no, 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 I want to take this seriously. Let's fix England's money. And everyone's like, come on, man, like do your science stuff or whatever. He's like, no, no, I, I'm I'm on this. I assume he was a jerk about the whole thing. I can only imagine so. And I mean, he does have his whole interests in alchemy, which I'm sure play into it because a, a significant portion of the problem that's uh, inherent in England's money supply right now is that as much as 10% of all coins are counterfeits. Oh, boy. Yeah, it's real bad at this point in time. It's very, yeah. very bad. There are a number of ways that people are uh, debasing coins. So there's the usual like clipping that we talked about, just kind of cutting pieces off the edges. But there's uh, sneakier methods. Um, one's called plugging, where you kind of punch out uh, some of the middle of it and then hammer over the the spot where you've you've punched it out. And these are soft enough metals that if you do it right, it just kind of looks like a worn coin. Um, right. There's uh, sweating which is lowest yield, but definitely highest believability. So you take a sack of silver coins and you just shake it for a long, long time. And these coins are gonna knock up against each other and rub against each other. And it's going to very slowly kind of abrade off silver dust from these coins. Right. And it's just going to look like old worn coins. Like it kind of replicates how coins wear anyways. Yeah. But at the bottom of your bag is a bunch of silver dust. <laughs> so you don't get as much, but you can almost guarantee that you can spend the coins after you've done this. People are doing all sorts of stuff to either fake coins or to debase coins. They're a complete mess. And Newton decides that the like they have to pull the nuclear option here in 1696 under the coin act they remove every single coin from circulation in england oh, okay and they replace every single one with uh new coins used uh made using the the machine method and in the process they also make counterfeiting illegal which i guess it wasn't before this oh boy. okay yeah they were they were really working on that tech tree he made a mistake though and it is a very, very consequential mistake. One of the smaller problems that they were working on with the COIN Act was the fact that, we, we talked about this earlier, sometimes the inherent value of the material is more than the face value of the money, and that's, a, that's an issue. Mm -hmm. The shilling, the silver shilling was about, it had about two shillings worth of, of silver in it. Oh. So they needed to fix that. So that was part of the the whole, you know, remove everything from circulation thing, right? But yep. when he reset the new um, exchange rate between silver and gold uh, to try and, uh, and and sort that issue out, he made a mistake in the math. Not one that was like so bad that, you know, um, was, was going to be a disaster immediately. But like, he also invented calculus or whatever. Like, so you think... Anyway, yeah. um, he set he set the he set 
the silver to gold exchange rate way too low. And the functional result of that was everybody was trading in their silver coins for gold coins. Nobody wanted silver coins. They weren't worth enough right. on the face value. Um, like he, he overcorrected too far and basically removed silver coins from circulation virtually altogether. Really? Okay. And it effectively moved the UK to the gold standard in 1717. Yeah. What do I mean by the gold standard? That means that the currency is only backed by gold. Most currencies to this point in time have been backed by silver or sometimes both silver and gold. That's a bimetallic standard. Yeah. And, you know, it's probably not the biggest deal in the world. I don't think Newton was was too concerned about it. But this also coincided with, you know, the the rise of the British Empire. Uh-huh. And you know, all their overseas holdings, uh the accumulation of most of the wealth of the world into one relatively small island nation and uh, the 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 centralization of the world's financial organs as a result, because a lot of those places that we were talking about earlier as having you know independent monetary uh, innovations, you know China, yep they've been they've been beaten by the 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 British in the in the nineteenth century. India that's no longer independent. Even a, a large portion of the Middle East portions of Africa, all of North America virtually at this point in time. Like everybody's everybody's British or they're using the British uh, financial system and so might as well be from a monetary point of view. Right. So Britain becomes the center of the banking world. It really does. Your 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 the, the British pound is the most powerful currency bar none over uh, the course of the 19th century and it is backed entirely by gold, not silver. And that means a lot of countries who are using silver are basically forced to work with a substandard uh, currency at a very aggressive exchange rate or adopt a gold, a gold standard themselves. Right. Okay. And so everyone kind of moves to the gold standard. And this whole replacement of all the silver on the world's markets, it's not as though a proportional amount of gold coins begin to circulate. It really, really doesn't. There's not gold. Gold coins are bad. They're not useful yeah. in day to day life. You can't buy a sandwich with a gold coin like, you know, it's 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 kind of. Yeah, you need smaller denominations. So really what happens is all of that silver or the value of all of that silver is replaced by circulating banknote currency. It's paper currency that's that's taking that day-to-day -day role in all of these systems. And all of these countries, when they're moving to the gold standard, are technically moving to what you would call a, a bullion system. And that means that gold coins don't really circulate. Instead, the, the financial institutions that are issuing currency have the um, gold reserves on hand somewhere centrally to back up that currency. In that sense, Newton's decision there, it's kind of the perfect thing if you want to to propel the world towards a banknote-based system of, of finance. Okay, Newton Just, Defender, logging on. I see no, how it is. Oh, no. No. Okay, hold on. I'm never going to defend Newton. Dude is a huge jerk. 
No, no, no. You're you're 100% right. I mean, if that was the end goal, then yes, he was playing some 5D chess. Um, <laughs> I think he was too busy uh, trying to find the, the Philosopher's Stone to notice his, his math mistake, though, is my real assessment there. I, I like Newton. I like awesome Newton. Why was. am I doing this? Why am I doing this? He was an interesting guy. He was, but I mean, he was... Well known, one of history's greatest and most impressive jerks. Yeah, he he was extraordinarily petty. Um, you love to see it. Uh, look, initially this bullion system is like the, the most important thing about the bullion system is that your currency, no matter what it is, can be expressed as a ratio to the price of gold. And initially, this is most important for trade, essentially between. Edinburgh and London, because you know you have the newly United Kingdom, um, but Edinburgh is a pretty uh, formidable financial center in its own right, and it has a completely different um, currency system at this point in time. So within the United Kingdom, you need a method of clear and fair exchange. You can't have people bartering and haggling over uh, exchange rates on an ad hoc basis. That gets real old. But once you're setting that ratio between two currencies within the UK, well, you can just as easily pin the franc to it, or you can pin the mark to it, or whichever other currencies you want to. You can peg them all to gold, and now you have an easy international exchange rate. Mm -hmm. It does mean that a country's gold supply determines the overall relative value of its currency. But, you know, it, it tends to work relatively well, at least on a sort of a day-to-day -day basis. Around this time through throughout the late 16th and then into the or late 17th and into the 18th century mm -hmm. too, there, there's, there's also the rise of international banking groups, right? Yes. Yeah. I think, I think people think of, um, like free trade and, and, uh, you know, um, significant international trade as being a relatively recent development. But in fact, the 19th century, the 18th century was a little bit closer like uh, countries tended to be a little bit more um working within their own colonial systems yeah but as you move into the 19th century uh international trade has relatively low barriers to trading even between um sort of world power systems and it tends to work out pretty well for everybody it turns out that that uh low barriers to trade tend to make all parties uh, a little bit wealthier Maybe with the exception of the whoever is the wealthiest party, um, sometimes they end up taking a little bit of a hit as a consequence. But in Britain's case here, um, they were still drawing so much wealth from their colonial holdings that they could mitigate any losses to a, a, an equitable trade network within Europe by supplementing with uh, wealth being removed from, from their colonial holdings. Right. And... By virtue of being the center of finance and, and getting to dictate the terms in some ways. Well, that that as well. Yeah, absolutely. So by the 1870s, basically every nation has a every uh, developed nation that is trading with Britain has a, a gold pegged uh, exchange rate. 
Some countries would also have an at-ratio silver standard, which would be known as a limping standard, but that can introduce some uncertainty because generally it would be like one gold dollar. Like there was a there was a, a silver dollar in the U.S. as opposed to right. the the standard gold dollar. It was known as a uh, Morgan dollar. It existed from 1878 to 1904, but there would be a ratio, right? Like theoretically, a Morgan dollar is worth the exact same amount as, as a standard dollar, but that's decided on a basis of like the ratio of real world uh, gold and real world silver within the country. And as, you know, for example, gold supplies go higher, people want to invest more in the gold dollars because they've comparatively lowered their value so they can make a little bit of value by trading into it it's it, it just it leaves a lot of room for uh speculative currency trading yeah it's it's complicated stuff you need to have a lot of money to make it worthwhile so by that virtue it just means the people with the most money can make use of it in the early 20th century there was an economist named john maynard Keynes who um, is, is one of the most uh, important names in economics in the 20th century, um, possibly ever. His ideas are, are uh, hotly contested to this day, which is usually a sign of, a, of an important person. Mm -hmm. In the 1910s, he was doing sort of a, almost a retrospective on the success of the gold standard and uh, found, found a few really interesting things. Because the first thing he did uh, in true uh, economist fashion was uh, identified what he called the rules of the game. So how exactly does a gold standard for everyone make a stable, prosperous, and fair world economy? And basically what he said was, well, it allows nations to centralize gold reserves, which allows them to you know, leverage them better than if they were just in the hands of the public. It allows nations to increase money supply through loans or invested assets. So, you know, that that uh, um, fractional banking that we talked about. It means that gold can be exchanged internationally at a fixed rate. And it means that um, or the, the, the one kind of key rule to all of this was there was an out in times of crisis, like especially war, that centralized banks could suspend the standard voluntarily for war use the funds that they need to, and then work their economy back to a point where they can jump back onto the gold standard. Mm. And it would keep things relatively level because it was essentially creating a, a debt. Anytime that you were spending more than the, the gold that you had for war, like that's fine. You need the funds up front. We're getting back to, you know, uh, 10,000 years ago, agrarian rules. You need those funds up front, but you would have to pay them back eventually kind of thing. No. There was a there's an 18th century philosopher and economist named David Hume who predicted that, um, you know, in a perfect system, if everybody was on the same resource and, and if we apply it here, gold, um, what you would see is that when countries were exporting more than they were importing, they should see an influx of gold, right, which would allow their their currency to rise uh, in value. But uh, any price disparities that were being caused by anyone who wasn't at a proper valuation could be corrected as it becomes cheaper to import or export gold internationally. So that means that if a, a currency is pegged too high, if it's valued too high, people will use it to buy gold from other nations. Right. And bringing in more gold will cause inflation and the, the value of the currency will drop. 
Likewise, the other way, if the if the currency is valued too low, people will um, sell gold to other nations, bring in the gold and or, or sorry, sorry, send out the gold, and uh, the the currency will deflate until it's the right price. Theoretically speaking, kind of a kind of a hysteresis system. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Um, the second thing that Keynes identified after going through all of this, again in true economist fashion, was that to his surprise, this isn't how things work in the real world. In truth, he found that central banks were actually able to exert a lot more control over the valuation of their currency through leverage of fractional banking than he would have expected. And that uh, the flow of gold to normalize all of this is really too slow to have as much of an effect as you'd want. In fact, it turns out that most of these powers were uh, deviating pretty far from their mathematically ideal gold standard. And the biggest, uh, and, and this is what Keynes is identifying in the 1910s, the biggest factor as to whether or not it's going to work out well is the, surprise, surprise, the population's confidence in the central banking uh, regulators. Right. As to uh, their ability to accurately peg the value of that currency, so that means, in fact, that a lot of these countries, uh, Italy and Spain, were especially um, liberal with their their valuations. But it's it's everybody was doing this at at different times. Most of these countries were not actually on the gold standard. They weren't doing what they were supposed to do with this system. Hmm. You know, there's there's things in place that. Uh, you know, of course, you're not going to trade exactly the exchange rate because there's fees that are involved for transportation and administration and all that stuff, right? But they're going way outside of that when they're when they're making these trades, as long as their citizenship is okay with what it ends up doing to the exchange rates of those currencies uh, and the buying power, like the purchasing power of those currencies. Kind of a a cantilevering of trust that. You know, when when a system like that starts to to crack, it's a lot harder to get back to something stable if you've been playing way outside of the the rules, as it were. Yeah, there's there's a oh, what do they call it? A moral imperative, right? This idea that um, you know, there's a there's a there's a cost to the public's uh, trust of you that is keeping a government in line uh, rather than any actual legal mechanism that you'll you'll lose. Uh, control, you'll lose power if you do this thing, not that you'll be legally punished for this thing. Um, yeah, yeah. And I, I think I think monetary policy is one of those things that it shows most clearly. Um, it, it fascinates me how we are into this like this insanely complex financial apparatus that you know on one hand people are carrying the coins around in their pockets that they're going to carry or the banknotes and doing their business day to day. And on another, you've got these nations who are directly exerting control over financial policy uh, and foreign policy and all of this. And yet the technology of money continues to just be at its root. What does everyone agree that this thing is worth? Like you can, you can put all of the controls that you want and there is just a certain guardrail at the outside of this there is a tolerance at which people go no yeah and i find that so fascinating like that that there's there's just we are we are we are not that far away from deciding that a cowrie shell is worth x amount of barley yeah 
Yeah, it's a technology that more than many others continues to work just by virtue of the social contract. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but but also the the social contract requires the technology, <laughs> like they're so yeah. mutually supportive. Um, it's it's yeah, I, I find it I find it so interesting. Um, really, the um, the gold standard doesn't survive the First World War. Um, to, to to call it disruptive is an understatement. I understand, but I, I mean, it, none of the nations that participated in that war. Were able to uh, maintain their uh, currency pegged against gold, except for one, uh, the United States, who <laughs> um, kept the currency pegged, uh, loaned a lot of money to European powers fighting, and in the span of a couple of years, went from a net importer uh, to a net uh, exporter. Um, they. Uh, Post-war U.S. is doing a lot better financially than than pre-war U.S. Uh, a lot of countries owe them a lot of money. Keynes was actually sort of peripherally involved with the Treaty of Versailles. He wasn't at the table, and um, he didn't get his way on on what he wanted uh, at the treaty. But he he was sort of uh, he was privy to some of the discussions, and. One of the things that he had learned from the analysis he had done very recently was how important that that public trust was. And the application of that was that he was a a major advocate for not financially punishing Germany too much for the war. His concern at the time being that you know the, the relationship between trust and money works both ways. If your money is untrustworthy, it can cause uh, if, if it's in real terms untrustworthy. So if, if inflation is high, if its value is low, if its purchasing power is low, it can have a negative effect on social cohesion. And uh, he was very concerned that an overly punitive Treaty of Versailles. Um, for war reparations paid by Germany could have a future detrimental effect on the uh, yeah the, the social stability uh, of of uh, the nation of Germany. Mm. So yeah, hmm. that takes us to uh, Germany in the 1920s. <laughs> Who everything was fine. The the reparations were specified that they had to be paid in foreign currency so that Germany couldn't print a bunch of marks and just say, here you go. But they also weren't able to get their currency back onto the gold standard because they had depleted most of their gold reserves fighting the war. And now they were uh, under all of these um, reparations payments that they had to essentially borrow to pay. So what they did was print a whole bunch of marks so that they could buy foreign currencies to pay off their war debt. And um, the more they printed, the more they needed to buy foreign currencies. And over a period between 1918 and 1923, something that cost one mark in 1918 was worth about one trillion marks in 1923. Oof. They had no way out of it. Um, there was there was, there was was literally no way to uh, uh, get around. I mean, uh, you know, I, I suppose I... I could say that they could default on their loans, but there were significant consequences for that as well. Yeah. Um, with the gold standard, if you don't have the gold 
to leverage against, uh, you know, that's 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 it. That's the ball game, especially with foreign powers dictating your your monetary policy. And I mean, the degree of austerity that would be required anyway would would lead right to a revolution, mm-hmm. as it did. Um, we have talked a number of times about coins being worth uh, more materially than their face value. This is a situation where the the paper money was worth more materially than its face value. Um, yeah, there were there were people wallpapering their their living rooms with with marks because it was cheaper to do that than to buy the wallpaper. Yeah, um, yeah it was. Plus, it looks baller. <laughs> I suppose so. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, you know, look, I. I am not someone who believes that World War II was in any way inevitable as a result of World War One. That's that's not really my thing. But like at the same, and and I think that there was a lot more leading Germany to um, the path that it took in the 30s than than just the reparations payments. But I will say that going through hyperinflation the way that they did uh, certainly didn't help anything. I mean, you know nowhere near comparable to today but the inflation at present certainly is is something to behold the impact that it's having on the way people talk oh 100% when did you ever hear anyone talk about inflation before before this year like it feels like never for for me um i mean and it's been a long time since uh well i mean for for us it's been long enough that we we were basically unaware uh the last yeah. time inflation was anywhere this close in 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 canada but um, yeah, it's 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 a it's a weird thing, and yeah, we're we're not we're not seeing seeing one trillion times uh, increases. So yeah. yeah, I mean, Germany had to had to basically reissue currency. It was uh, it was a it was a massive mess. It was really bad. It's a real shame because the Weimar Republic seemed like there was some really good progressive elements to that in the pre World War II Germany. Just a fascinating society. Yeah, I, I find it. I find it really interesting. Yeah, they they were, I don't know, they were they were going really interesting directions. It was it was, um, it was set up for failure, and uh, and you know, it fail it did. But yeah, Weimar the the Weimar Republic was um, it's it's worth it's worth taking a look to look at for sure. I didn't realize Keynes predicted, well, not that, but predicted the some of the consequences of uh, a punitive treaty yeah i mean and he certainly wasn't the only one raising it as a possibility um sure there, there were a number of of other voices in the in the british elite that were concerned about the same and and realistically the the french were pushing for it the hardest but yeah. um the the british delegation the the leads of the delegation were were happy to impose fairly high penalties as well their their concern there was that they realized that the the war had essentially um ended britain's position as the sole center of the financial world and we're hoping to at least partially recoup some of that wealth which was a which is a, it was a doomed prospect that was never going to happen but that was the that yeah. was the fairly short short thinking uh, short-sighted thinking there the winning parties of the war tried to get back onto the gold standard uh over you know the decade following the the war and some were more successful than others but uh, essentially, the Great Depression really ended it until the second, until after the Second World War. Interestingly enough, if you 
look at a graph of um, economic performance over um, the course of the Great Depression and map it to the moment in time at which each country dropped the gold standard, in most cases, that was the moment that their economy started recovering. Really? Yeah. <laughs> well, it just gave them the, the freedom to, to enact monetary policy. Because in a, in, a, um, in a downturn, generally, it looks like the best policy is to take on debt and spend your way out of it. Yeah. That's, that's been pretty clear um, economic policy in, in uh, at least portions of, of, the, uh, of the discipline for, for a very long time now. I think we just had a major test of that. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely, and and it's still debated now, right? Like, but it's it's um, you know, well, I mean, monetary policy stuff is also weird. It's its own beast. There's there, you know, the yeah. the latest, most fashionable one is does does a national deficit even matter? Which is a which which is just a radical idea, and also there's some compelling arguments for it, and also it seems really scary. And I don't know, I don't I don't understand this stuff well enough to really have a position no. on it. But like th this this stuff is still being hashed out to this day. Um, Keynes himself has been um, seeing a bit of a resurgence uh, in the last couple decades. Um, it's it's out of our scope, but you know there was a big after the you know, 07, 08, uh, financial crisis, there was a big resurgence of like, maybe this guy had the right idea sort of thinking. Um, right. it's kind of interesting stuff with the end of the second world war, or even be so before the end of the second world war, the parties that would go on to win the war were trying to map out the future of, of the world and, and international systems. Um, you know, beginning even as early as 41, which I, I think is kind of <laughs> ambitious, but, um, you know, by, by 1944 or so, there was a pretty good idea of how things were going to go. It was more of a timeline issue. The, uh, the, the major allied powers started talking about what does the world's monetary systems look like? seems a little weird in the middle of a war, but understanding, you know, where uh, some of the roots of the Second World War lie for Germany, they they saw that as being as important to prevention of future conflicts as, as you know, military policy, diplomatic policies, things like that. And yeah. this time Keynes was uh, fairly directly involved with the, uh, you know, the, the direction of things. There's a there's a conference at um, some town called Bretton Woods, uh, New Hampshire. Yep. Uh, the uh, the talks begin in 1944, and uh, and result in something called the Bretton Woods Agreement, which is basically a plan for the post-war economy, and it, it encompasses a number of things, including the uh, development of the International Monetary Fund, the IMF, which was seen as a loaner a lender of the last resort, but also for a long time it was the governing body over. Um, exchange rates when they were all pegged to the gold standard. Mm. Um, Keynes actually advocated for the creation of a neutral uh, gold-backed world currency that, like nobody, that nobody really like spent. Like you wouldn't carry it around in your pocket. But the exchange rate between national currencies and this uh, this imaginary currency would be the way that countries could have relatively different exchange rates and still have it pegged to a real reserve of gold. So kind of an Esperanto for cash? Yeah, basically. That's 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 a good way of putting it. Um huh. now the the United States objected, which is unsurprising. 
look, by this time, especially because of the um, the Marshall Plan, which is a, a pretty extensive refinancing agreement between the United States and most of Europe, uh, that again uh, brought a lot of wealth into the United States uh, out of Europe. Yeah. Most countries at this point in time, at the end of the Second World War, are preferring to buy and sell U.S. dollars rather than gold. Mm-hmm. And their argument is, well, why mess with a good thing? Why are we Why are we making this more complicated? Just make U.S. dollars the the thing that everybody else is pegged to. No problem. Yeah. <laughs> so there's a there's a compromise here, which is they decide that they need the United States to pegged to the value of gold at $35 an ounce. And they need the United States, uh, like contractually, to maintain value at plus or minus 1% of the, that value by buying or selling US dollars on the international market. And in exchange for their regulatory actions, which should um, you know, theoretically keep the US dollar really, really steady, right? Keep inflation low, um, have a very uh, solid value to trade against because it's all backed by real gold held by the United States. In mm-hmm. exchange for this effort at regulation, the rest of the world is going to trade in U.S. dollars and peg their conversion rates to U.S. dollars. There's a couple of concessions here. One is that any foreign currency can buy gold at a flat rate based on their conversion rate. So if there is a, you know, if it's U.S. dollars is $35 an ounce, um, there's a foreign currency that, uh, you know, it's a 10 to 1 value uh, for U.S. dollars. You need 350 of those to buy one ounce of gold, but you're paying exactly 350. You're not taking a little bit off the top for, you know, service fees or whatever. Yeah. That's the exchange. Now, domestic convertibility is lost here. So you can no longer go to a bank and just say, I want $1 of gold, please, and hand over a dollar. You're going to get, at best, 50 cents of gold if you try and do that. Also, they won't let you buy that little. Yeah. Um, But up until this point, that was possible. You could go to a bank and it would take a while, but you would get exact backed gold for your cash. This works well for decade and a half or so, or two and a half decades rather. But as major uh, uh, world economies start recovering and the U.S. isn't responsible for like two thirds of the world economy, Japan, Germany start bouncing back. They're extremely strong industrially. The U.S. dollar starts to struggle to maintain that plus or minus one percent value. U.S. is also going through a bunch of stuff. We're in the middle of the Vietnam War. Uh, we're coming up on the OPEC crisis. Like, there's a lot of just there's a bunch of stuff going on. Domestic inflation is is uh, taking off, and, and what what ends up happening out of that is that when this whole system started, like 55 or 60 percent of the um, U.S. currency in circulation was gold backed, so they had a pretty high reserve percentage. Okay. Around 1970 or so, they start approaching 20% coverage. Oh, boy. They're at about 22. And there's this interesting thing that happens, which is a lot of countries go, well, hang on. This is a really good deal for the US because if the US wants $100, they just stamp out a $100 bill. But if I want $100, I have to trade $100 worth of goods to the US. And so they start trading in their 
you know, centrally held U.S. dollars. Uh, France takes the lead on this. Charles de Gaulle, I, I don't, th I feel like people have forgotten how much of a pot stirrer he was. <laughs> uh, Charles de Gaulle starts trading in all of the U.S. dollars that France has for gold. That's a, that's a nice cheese. And then everybody else starts doing it too. In 1971, the U.S. has very little gold. Their unemployment is over 6%. Their inflation rate is nearing 6%. And Nixon goes, okay, enough is enough. And he announces a couple of extreme measures all at the same time. He closed the free convertibility of dollars to gold. So other nations can no longer buy gold for US dollars. He puts a 90-day wage and price freeze on everybody in the United States to tamp down on inflation. Oh, wow. First time since the war. And he puts a blanket import surcharge of 10% on every single import into the United States to insulate them from the effects of what he's doing right now. Wow. This is actually extremely po uh, popular uh, domestically. It's seen as like good, you know, protection for the U.S., basically. We have protectionism. He also decouples the dollar from the price of gold. Yeah. He decides the dollar uh, the dollar is now worth about 38 uh or sorry, uh, an ounce of gold is worth about $38 and then $42 and then a little more. And then he keeps they keep saying that they're going to bring it back up once this crisis is over. But then they just don't. <laughs> this is known as the Nixon shock. Medium-term effects are are pretty devastating, actually. Um, the the U.S. dollar loses about a third of its value internationally uh, over the '70s, mm -hmm. but you know it starts recovering uh, domestically. the The U.S. markets don't really notice the hit as badly because they have enough domestic production to sort of weather it. Yeah, and they have such a tremendous domestic market in general, mm -hmm. and. Nobody's really done anything about that. And what that means is that the world's currencies since uh, this event, they, they called it the Nixon shock. Ever since then, you know, up until then, you could trace money more or less back to a chunk of precious metal. Since 1971, every world currency just sort of is. And it has value huh. compared to the other ones but only compared to the other ones. This is what's known as a floating uh, exchange rate. And that's just been how all the money is ever since 1971. Huh. Have there been other ways that have been developed to kind of enforce stability? The, the idea there is that uh, central banks will exert control over where they'd like their monetary policy to be in comparison to others um but the onus is on them to set that and it's also allowing the market to set exchange rates that they that the market feels is fair which is terrifying um yep it's all just sort of out there generally everybody has an exchange rate against the u.s dollar and it's kind of calculated from there but you know, the U.S. dollar is just in comparison to everything else. So here we are. We're back to cowrie shells. <laughs> 
And it's an unsatisfying end. It's a little bit concerning. Um, but that's been money all along. This it's just this, you know, it's it's this mutually agreed upon hallucination of of value that we all decide is fine and good and we're happy with it. And that's money. Uh-oh. I guess if we were going to put a real ending on this, I would say that functionally what has happened over the more recent past is that we've moved away from money of exchange being important to money of account being the most important with, you know, electronic payments, uh, payment cards, things like that. Um, yeah. Having a tangible thing to hold becomes less and less important in a digital society. But th I think that at the at the core of it, we kind of hope to dig down a little bit and find something of real value, whatever that means. And uh, no, not really. <laughs> it's just it's just everybody kind of coming to a consensus. I think, yeah, that that point makes sense. I mean, it's harder to relate to Jimmy Stewart and the It's a Wonderful Life bank run in an age when we rarely handle cash. Yeah. It just gives faith to the idea that, you know, the money isn't a physical thing anyway, so things can be a little more loose. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, there's there's sort of two ways that goes. One is that we've figured things out well enough that that's a sufficient protection of our, you know, valuation of the world. Or the other is that yeah. there's some other impending crisis that we just haven't accounted no. for yet and we haven't hit it. No, that's so. What are the odds? No. <laughs> anyway, that's that's money. That's that's what I want to say about <laughs> it. That went longer than I expected, but it's it's just I don't know. It's it's such a relatable topic and it's such an interesting one that it was it was really enjoyable to kind of really dig deep on it. Well, yeah. I mean, you keep having me on to talk about just the the most fascinating fundamental technologies that we've developed as a species, and and this is certainly such an intricate one and and one that's developed kind of in tandem with the scale of our societies mm -hmm. and civilizations that we keep, especially in the last thousand years, we keep adding increasing layers of complexity and abstraction to support these sprawling empires. Yeah. Yeah. It's really something to consider. It's, um, I, I, I understand why people get to a place where they kind of throw their hands up and go, well, it's all made up anyway. It doesn't matter. You know, this is, <laughs> this is an illusion. We can do what we want. And it's, it's, I, I'm, a, I'm afraid that the escape is not that simple. <laughs> Yeah. Nor, nor I think is is the escape as simple as as you know reinventing the wheel. I, I think that um, you know as as much as much as the the whole thing is a little bit shaky when you poke at it. Um, we've we've learned a lot of lessons on how not to do things uh, over the years. There's a there's a really famous quote that floats around. Every once in a while, people want to get back on the gold standard, which is uh, kind of interesting. And you know, it, it had its advantages, but it has a lot more disadvantages, at least to the current system that we're in um whether or not that's a that's an absolute judgment is uh, beyond my expertise um mm. but there's a famous uh, quote that floats around uh it's 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 an economist that basically says um we're not on the gold standard because we don't know about it we're on we're not on the gold st standard because we do 
<laughs> the point being like we, we tried this stuff it didn't work and we know why or we think we know why and, and we're pretty sure we have a better idea about it yeah but yeah i i don't know i i think the one other thing that i will say about the digitization about of of uh currency is i i think that that is also true on the not just on the the, the monetary side of things but also on the the commerce side of things you see people selling things online and just sort of pegging a price on them and there is still despite all this like very central planning and, and careful consideration there is still this abstract ad hoc decision making where somebody goes that looks like it's worth about five bucks and somebody else goes that sounds good and that's the end of the transaction hmm. and yeah it, it's I don't think that's ever going to quite go away either. I think that is, it is so core um, to the human experience in a society that that's, there, there always has to be some room for, for that to happen. Yeah. Well, anything else you'd like to say about money or have we uh, pretty much said it all? That That's about it. Thanks again for having me on. Oh, thanks so much for coming. It's always a pleasure to have you here. This is a difficult episode to put a button on because encapsulating a fundamental always ends up sounding a little too simplistic. So instead, I'll simply say that the more disruptive a time is, the more important it is to understand the mechanisms by which money is influenced, and I hope we've managed to provide a little bit of context here. Since HI101's format can lead to some factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections I post there for each episode. For example, in this episode, I say that Newton invented the calculus. I'd like to take this opportunity to apologize to all the Leibniz fans out there. I see you, you're valid, and I hope the fact that this omission was made while dunking on Newton will buy me a little bit of forgiveness. That correction and more are on the site. If there are any errors I've missed there, please let me know so I can add them. You can also reach me on Facebook at facebook.com slash hi101podcast, on Twitter at hi101podcast, or by email at contact at hi101.ca. If you'd like to support the show, please visit patreon.com slash hi101 to make a monthly pledge, or paypal.me slash hi101 for a single donation. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your interest, take a look around. I guarantee there's plenty of interesting information out there that we did not cover. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101. Oh,